Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Good morning. Uh, Would you please take up your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 4. You'll find that on page 766 of uh, the Bibles that will be on your chairs or around you. Or if you've got a large print, that's page 911. Amos chapter 4. We're carrying through our series on Amos. Let's listen to his, God's words to us. It's the whole chapter. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you. When they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I'd send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Amen. 
Well, just as we start, uh, I want you to have a think about someone that you know. Someone that you know is, who is humble. What do I mean by that? Well, someone who, who doesn't think too highly of themselves, who um, is always looking out for other people. They're kind of other-centered. Okay, just, just have a think now. Think of someone who you know that's humble. Because humility, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to behold, isn't it? I, I, I thought of someone who's, who's really gifted and yet just does their job in a small, quiet way. They don't draw attention to themselves. And it's a sight to behold, isn't it? Especially because we're in a world of, of hierarchy. However much we, we say we're all the same, we know it's a dog-eat-dog world. Uh, we, self-promotion at work or, or gossip in the playground. You know, we just walk into a room and we immediately size everyone else up, kind of as opposition. Um, who am I better than? Who do I hope to be like? And either we despair because we think we should be better or we look down on others because we think we are better. It's, it's pride, isn't it? It's pride combined with uh, comparison. And yet we all know deep down, deep down there's a better way to live, isn't there? Uh, like the person we thought of. It's a, a life of humility. Uh, now I wonder if comparison's not the problem. It's whom we're comparing ourselves to. That's the problem. Because Amos chapter 4 gets us to take our, our eyes off each other and rather look at God himself. And it's only then, it's only then as we look at him that true humility starts to take shape in our lives. So let's have a look. Okay, We're now in this second section of Amos, uh, chapters 3 to 5. And in a sense, we're in court. God is showing his people their crimes and his verdict. Uh, and in chapter 4, the big crime here is pride. Uh, but as he shows them this, he displays them what he, li- what he is like, the only real solution to our pride. Okay, so firstly, Israel is this. Verse, verses 1 to 5, we'll be saying that they're proud in the face of God's pure holiness. Proud in the face of God's pure holiness. A- Amos zooms in on, if you notice verse 1, you cows of Bashan. Now, Bashan's a place that's renowned, was renowned in those days for well-fed, well-looked-after cattle. And he's pointing the finger at these wealthy women of Samaria. These were women who were, who were doing very well for themselves. You know, they were living in luxury. Just imagine the fine life. Everything they wanted is at their fingertips. But these lives are utterly self-absorbed. Uh, the poor are oppressed, you see that? Uh, the needy are crushed. And all to keep their lifestyle. It's all at the expense of others. This is not just in their society. There's a book, um, I don't know if you've read it, called The Help. It was turned into a film not that long ago. And it's all about wealthy white women um, in Jackson, Mississippi in the 1960s and how they treated uh, black servants, their, their help. And, and it's horrific. There's this utter disdain for them. They, they, they treat them like nobodies, forced to use different toilets, fired on a whim, spoken of horrifically. And yet those black women working so hard, looking after their children, cooking, cleaning. It was a world of luxury while others were crushed. And that's the picture we've got in Amos. It's it's entitlement, isn't it? That belief 
You deserve this. You are a cow of Bashan, a superior stock. You deserve the best. Others, others, they can do my dirty work. I wonder if it creeps into all our hearts. Are there, you know, are there things at work or at home that, that they just feel beneath you? Ever felt those words creep up inside? I'm kind of a big deal. It's pride. And the more these women here thought of themselves, the less they thought of others. It's pride. Uh, And that's not all. Uh, Amos gives us another example. This time it's pride in worship in verse 4. In verse 4 he goes all sarcastic. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifice every morning. And he goes on and on. Keep worshipping, as he finishes, as you love to do. Keep doing things your way. Because doing it their way, what does it show? It shows them it's about them, not about God. They were bringing sacrifices every morning, which God had not told them to do. Tithes every three days, when he had said every three years. They were, they were burning leavened bread, which was meant to be given to the priests. And a, a free will offering, well, how can that be free will when it's published? They were doing things how they wanted. This was about them, not about God. They were supposedly worshipping. Extra tithes, extra sacrifices. It was about themselves. It was pride. There's no love for God here. Just love for themselves. You know, it's like saying, oh, oh just recently I, I signed a check to go to church. It's so great people know about it. It's just to encourage them, of course, even though God says give in secret. Or, or, I was fasting last weekend, oh, weren't you? Oh dear. You know, when God doesn't tell us how or when to fast. Or, or you haven't, haven't read Calvin? Call yourself a Christian. You know, we, we're adding in new things as, as necessary to worship. Oh, it makes you sound more devoted to God, doesn't it? But actually, you're more devoted to yourself. To make yourself feel good. I like to worship God my way. And it's pride. Again and again in Amos, it's it's quite intriguing. Oppression of others and false worship are seen uh, tied together. What we do with our hearts before God flows out of how, uh, sorry, flows out in, in, in how we treat others. No love for God, no love for people. They've lost sight of him. Because who is he? Verse 2. Just have a look back at verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. He's the God of holiness. Holiness, it's this, this crowning of all his attributes. It means, it means firstly that God is so other to us. He is awesome, isn't he? In, in majesty. His love is holy. It's so different to ours. His might is holy. He's the almighty one. He is God above. He's God in the heights far above what we can conceive of or imagine. He's limitless. He's holy. But holiness also has a moral quality. It's about purity. Here in verse 2, God's expressing his pure holiness in this judgment. This judgment on these proud women. His moral purity is so holy, he cannot tolerate such oppressive, such self-seeking pride. He is glorious in purity. He's infinite in holiness. This is who he is. As the angels, they're declaring in heaven right now, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's like dazzling white, 
It's whiter than white. There's not a speck of dirt. There's no shadow in it. It's, it's blazing white. God's pure holiness. He's just so different to us. And in this universe, we can, we're, not, we're not the top dog. Okay? We look around us and, and we see ourselves ruling creation, sure. But we forget, we forget, don't we? There's one higher. There's one more wonderful, more glorious. He's in unapproachable light. And yet we can think so highly of ourselves. How ridiculous is that? We are nothing compared to this God, are we? We are proud, immoral, self-seeking creatures. But he is holy. And yet we can think ourselves better than others. We can look down on the people he's made, his, his image bearers creatures of the Holy One and yet we can treat them like dirt and we can even have the audacity to say to God I'm going to worship you how I want how I love to worship whatever you say to the contrary it's pride it's pride in the face of God's pure holiness okay verses 6 to 11 okay we see another extraordinary facet of who God is here we see We see hard hearts on our side, hard hearts in the face of God's gracious sovereignty. This is gracious sovereignty. Because in the face of their pride, this is amazing, God pursues them. Like a man in love pursuing his adulterous wife. He wants them back time and and time again in these verses. Yet you did not return to me. All that he was doing was to that end. For them to return to him, to come back. And he's using all his means. Before in this book, we've seen his provision of good things. He's rescued them from Egypt. He's given them the gift of the law. He sent them prophets, giving them his word. They're a nation blessed with gifts, all for their good. And now we see a different method. Here he does the exact opposite. Rather than giving good gifts, he takes them away. Here we see God's otherness to us, don't we? He he doesn't fit into a neat box. No, here he takes away food. He withholds rain. He ruins harvests. He lets famine come. He lets locusts decimate crops. He sends in foreign rulers to kill their young men. He even obliterates towns like Sodom and Gomorrah. What a list. What a list. This is this power. This power to do what he wills is what the church often calls God's sovereignty. It's his utter control of all things. Everything, everything is at his disposal. Whether it's humans bringing war or natural forces like rain and locusts, he's in control of them all. This is not just in Amos. We see this throughout scripture. Jesus himself said, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's. He is in utter control of all things. This is a power, isn't it, outside of our understanding. His, his use of humans to, to do his will has been likened to a rider steering a horse, but, but that doesn't even do it justice. Somehow, somehow we do what we want, we do as we desire, and yet God is in control of it. This is awesome sovereignty. But also, this is not arbitrary. Okay, God here, isn't, he's not being vindictive. No, God has said this would happen, actually. Back in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, God had said, you break my covenant and I uh, will bring these results. 
Amos' language is straight from those books. This is God's just punishment being worked out here. These horrific events weren't silent. They were talking. They were shouting at Israel that something had gone horribly wrong. You've broken the covenant with God, they were saying. C.S. Lewis has, has put it like this. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This was God's megaphone to his people, rousing them to realize what had gone wrong. This was grace at work. This is what's so extraordinary about it. One commentator puts it like this. To the prophet, history was a book of theology. He could read divine grace on every page. All these bad events were God's call to come back. God's call to return to him, it's grace. It's grace. Now perhaps you're wondering, how how does this work? How can it be okay for God to bring famine in order for him to get people back to him? Like this is an extraordinary thing going on, isn't it? Okay. Well, well, let's just build up the picture because this is hard. Okay, so firstly, it's important to say these people aren't an innocent third party. Okay? The Israelites are not that. They are guilty. They are guilty and God is judge. So therefore the famine is coming as punishment. We thought about that a bit last week, didn't we, in the passage last time. But they are condemned under God's punishment. It's just. So that's the first really important part of this picture. But secondly, we need to realize this is, um, uh, this is punishment with a purpose. Punishment with a purpose because of the alternative if they don't come back to God, then there is more than just famine that awaits them. Okay, God will punish sin eternally. If famine leads to repentance, then it was worth it compared to eternal hell. But most importantly, this is also about what's best for humanity, for his people. Because... We all give our lives to what we think is the best thing. Okay? We, we, um, and only when we find that best, that ultimate good, do we actually find deep satisfaction and, and peace as human beings, whatever we believe. But it's, it's true of us all. Okay? We, we all give ourselves to something. Whether it's a success, that's what we give ourselves to. Or, 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 or the care of those in need, or the, the pursuit of pleasure. But since God... Since God is the infinite, since God is the the glorious, holy one, good in every way, the only place to find the rest for our souls is is when we're with him. Knowing God is what we're made for. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So whatever else goes on in our lives, whether it's famine, whether it's bereavement, whether it's pain and suffering, If we find ourselves wrapped in the arms of God, knowing him, enjoying him, it's worth it. Because it's in him is life, life in abundance. This is God's sovereign power, punishing with a purpose. It's grace. God's sovereignty was gracious. He was aiming to bring about a beautiful thing. 
And it was doing it by sending shockwaves through their pride. Just think, all, all those things brought the Israelites up against their limits. They couldn't control their food supply. They couldn't control the weather. Whether it, uh, uh, where it rained, where it didn't. They couldn't control the fruit of their harvest the, or the work of the locusts. Their power was weak in the face of their enemies. Their lives out of their hands. As the, the writer to the Ecclesiastes, uh, of Ecclesiastes said over and over, their lives were a breath. The merest of breaths. Like a, like a child who thinks you know, that they're good at football. And then they play with the older kids. Uh, and they see that they're complete weakness and lack of skill. Israel should have seen it. They weren't who they thought they were. But also, knowing these events were punishment should have shattered their moral pride. They should have heard the call to repentance. You're sinned. You've sinned. You're not the success, the good people you think you are. You worship and yet you don't worship me. Now, as we we look at our lives and our own world, it's important to say it isn't necessarily a specific pain in our lives is because of a specific sin. Okay? Lives are, are so much more complex than that. Our hearts are so much more complex than that. But that doesn't mean we don't let what's going on challenge our pride. You know, problems in our, in our world and in our lives should, should make us look at our hearts. It should send shockwaves through our pride. Knowing I'm limited, I'm a sinful human being. Am I proud in my worship? Am I proud in the way I treat others? Am I all about me? Or have I returned to God, dependent on him? This is what David helped us to consider when the coronavirus pandemic began, didn't he? Helping us to think through our fasting, our repentance. Things were falling apart in the world. Was this God rousing his church and his world to repentance? Because this is his gracious sovereignty. This is what he does. He loves his people so much, he calls them back to himself. What power, what grace towards us. It's not as we'd expect, is it? But do we have ears to hear? It's also important to say this is not our job to do. We don't deliberately bring bad things on people to break their pride. No, this is God's role. Only he can do so in a loving, gracious way. We discipline as we ought, of course, but we leave the results to God. And yet, and yet, the people of Israel did not listen. They were not only proud in the face of God's holiness, they were hard-hearted in the face of his gracious sovereignty. Remember that repeated refrain, it just came again and again, didn't it? Yet you did not return to me. They stuck their fingers in their ears. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to read the times. In the face of this God who made them, who, who rescued them, who had been patient with them, had given them his loving law, he had let them know him, the only one who brings joy and delight and life, and they just, they just pushed him away. Their pride was so great, rather than seeing their limits, they just plowed on. You know, like, like our own nation, in the face of natural disasters, we're going to win. We will conquer. We are the greatest. Back in 2012, if you can remember that long ago, the band Muse wrote the official song for the Olympics. Um, and in it, I, I think they capture the heart of this kind of pride. Okay, listen to the lyrics. Don't worry, I'm not going to try and sing it. Um, you'll be glad. Um, 
it says this, race, life's a race and I'm going to win. Yes, I'm going to win and I'll light the fuse and I'll never lose and I choose to survive. Whatever it takes, you won't pull ahead, I'll keep up the pace and I'll reveal my strength to the whole human race. Yes, I am prepared to stay alive. I won't forgive, the vengeance is mine and I won't give in because I choose to thrive, yet I'm going to win. That is the hard heart in the face of God's gracious sovereignty. Now, I'm going to win. How is your heart this morning? Is your view of yourself so great you can't hear his call back to you? Come to me. Come back to me. We're not in control, are we? We are a breath away from dying, whatever your age this morning. Can you really make it on your own? Will you thrive without the gracious, loving creator? Hard-hearted in the face of God's gracious sovereignty. This is It's a bit like a Shakespeare tragedy, isn't it? It's all, it's all just kind of heading to a dark ending. It started with Israel in success, but proud. It's, it moved to them under fire, but they've remained hard-hearted. And now, verses 12 to 13, we reach its climax. <laughs> Amos takes them to the future. And finally, ask them, are you ready? Are you ready in the face of God's almighty appearing? Verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Therefore, thus I will do to you. After all this, God has one last move, and actually it's the final action, and and actually it's hidden Do you notice that? Thus. He doesn't actually tell us what. He leaves it to our imaginations. What is going to happen? We don't know what, but we do know how. It's when we meet God himself. Prepare to meet your God, he says. God will come. God will meet them in a way they've never witnessed before and just see the power of his appearing in verse 13. He's a God who forms mountain and creates the wind. He declares to man his thoughts. He makes the morning darkness and even treads on the heights of the earth. This is the Lord, the God of hosts. This is the God who will appear. He is not small or weak. He is not overpowered by armies or needing to reach up to the mountains. No, he forms them and comes down and steps on their heights. This is an image of utter glory, isn't it? Now, generally, we can be in awe of meeting someone important or famous, can't we? You know, we meet a celebrity and we're dumbstruck. Uh, You can't actually say anything. Perhaps that's that's happened to you. Or perhaps that's fear when you've been called to see the head teacher. I remember uh, that when I was 11. The absolute terror coursing through my veins when I walked up to the headmaster's study. Well, that feeling, that's just a, a glimmer of what it would be like to meet your gods. And so what's God's command? Prepare. Prepare to meet him. Prepare. Be ready. Now either we can be ready in our pride, can't we? If we're going to stay hard-hearted and proud, then are you ready for what's coming? God will come to judge the Almighty God and his Son, Jesus Christ, his appointed judge. Do you think you'll stand before him and give an account of your life? Well, if so, be ready. But there's another way to be ready. And it's to be ready in humility. 
in the face of who God is, we, we let that sink in and we let it shape who we think we are. We let his holiness, we let his grace, we let his sovereignty, we let his power shine before us and put us in our place as finite humans, as, as sinful finite humans. And this isn't a humility where we think less of ourselves. Okay, It's not thinking I'm worthless. That's not humility. You're not worthless. No one is worthless. If you were, God wouldn't care. He wouldn't care what you did. He wouldn't care how you treated other human beings or, or even bother with you. No, every human being, we have dignity. We're made in his image. No, humility, real humility, is an honest knowledge of who God is and who we are before him. It's being childlike, actually. It's like a child who knows they need help tying their shoelaces, uh, doing their seatbelt, even feeding themselves. The child who knows they are weak, but mummy and daddy is strong. We know God is strong and we are weak. God is pure and, and I am a sinner. We need him to get us ready, to prepare us. That's what humility is. It's coming to him for help. That's what the baptisms were symbolizing. That's what's going on. It's God getting us ready. It's, it's him washing away our sin, our pride, our hard hearts through the power of Jesus' death in our place. It's, it's him bringing us forgiveness and new life by pouring his spirit on us. It's him closing us clothing us with Jesus' perfection. Aren't there incredible promises shown to each one of us in our baptisms? And so we receive them. We're, we're like a beggar sitting on the street, destitute, with, with, with nothing but the clothes on his back and, and the cardboard he's sitting on. And a, and a lady walks up to him with a, a sheet of paper. It's, it's well printed. It's got a seal on it. She kneels down next to him and with a smile on her face, hands over this piece of paper. And he receives it. And it's, it, it, the paper is title deeds to a palace. And he just receives it. That's how we prepare. We humbly receive God's grace. The, the old hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross. Thy cross I cling. We don't need to pretend to be someone. We come as we are and we receive. And that means rather than fear and trepidation, rather than feeling like we're going to go and meet a headmaster, we can look forward to the day of God's appearing in Christ because we are prepared. We can look forward to the day when we're going to see our Savior and our God face to face. It will be a glorious day. The, the blinkers of sin will be torn away and we will see him as he is. And it also means in the meantime, Rather than looking down on the people God has made, putting our needs, our wants first, we can treat them more important than ourselves because they're his creatures, finite sinners, just like us. We can die to self and live for Jesus. May this God of Amos, the holy, gracious, sovereign God, sink deep into our hearts so that we see our pride and we come to him, come to him humbly, ready, ready in the face of his appearing. Amen.